Let's pray. God, you truly are a gracious God. We thank you uh, for the fact that we could come and we could sit at your feet as you teach and instruct us from your word. God, we are in great need for you to be the surgeon of our hearts, to open us up and to expose us, God, for who we are. And we pray that we might turn to you, God, that we might cry out to you for mercy, that you would be our hope. We thank you that you are a a good and a gracious and a compassionate God. And it's because of that, Lord, we come to you this day. So please speak to us now from your word. We ask in your name. Amen. When we look at the scriptures, we, we see many things, but one of the things that we are reminded of is, is that God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and neither are God's ways our ways. That is because He is the Creator God, and we are, are merely the creature. Now, that's so easy to say in church, is it not? That God is the creator and we're the creatures, but the reality is, is as we walk out these doors, as we live our lives, oftentimes are we not tempted to live our lives as if we are something really important. And it's really easy for us to forget that maybe as we perceive life, as we, you know, sort of reason through the circumstances that we encounter, that maybe we don't know as much as what we think we know. That maybe when it comes to understanding who God is and even understanding our own heart and even our perception of other people, that maybe we don't see as clearly as what we think we do. And as we come to this last chapter of Jonah, it is interesting how God has put together this book. I don't know about you, but I think if I were to write the book of Jonah, I would have stopped after chapter 3. I mean, because at the end of chapter 3, I mean, you have a wayward prophet who wouldn't listen to the Lord. God stretches out his mighty hand and grabs that prophet, gets his attention, and sends him off to to Nineveh to preach the gospel. He preaches the gospel to this pagan, wicked city. And guess what? The Lord works in such a mighty way that the people hear it, repent of their sin, are humbled before the Lord, And come to faith in him and there's this great revival. The end. Let's stop. I mean, that just seems like the perfect ending to the story. But instead, we see here that it continues in chapter 4 as God begins to deal with the heart of a prophet that in many ways is pouting before the Lord. Even more than pouting, he is angry at God for his compassionate and his gracious work. And, and I think that there's something in this with us as well. That sometimes that our hearts can be such that we know the truth of God's word. And yet as God presses down upon us and he reveals to us truly where our hearts are, that sometimes we can see that we don't see God so clearly. That's a little bit like the Pharisees. The Pharisees thought they knew God so well. They thought they understood God so well. And yet Jesus Christ you know, called them whitewashed tombs, you know, that is, you know, letting them see that they really didn't know God as well as they did. And so God is sort of challenging uh, Jonah this morning. And, and I think he, he will challenge us as well from his word as, as we have to ask ourselves, is it possible for God to be too compassionate? You know, as we look at the Lord, is there, is there a sense in which we can think that God is too compassionate? And I think that that is truly possible 
You know, if our hearts have not been changed to truly understand the wonderful grace of God, if we really don't understand how God works through his works of providence, and as we don't understand how compassionate God is. And so what we're going to see here in this passage today is, is that God challenges or he exposes Jonah's understanding of grace, providence, and compassion. And he does the same with us as well. That First of all, God challenges or exposes our understanding of grace. Now look at verses 1 and 2 if you would. First of all, we run into Jonah's anger uh, and then his accusatory tone in verse 2. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Now, I'm just going to stop right there. In the Hebrew, what that says is it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. What the Lord had done in the eyes of Jonah was exceedingly evil, is what it says. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarsus. In other words, Lord, I told you that this was going to happen and you didn't listen to me. You see, in one sense, Jonah was sort of wagging his finger in the face of God and said, God, how dare you do that? He had become so self-absorbed, so filled with self-pity that he had forgotten who it was that he was speaking to. And notice why Jonah is so angry. Now this is, this is uh, you just got to appreciate this. He says in verse, at the end of verse 2, he says, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now I don't know if those words sound familiar to you, but those uh, are words taken from Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, where uh, God had passed before Moses on Mount Sinai, and God declared himself that he is a God that is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And then throughout the Old Testament, we see that God continues to press this point over and over and over again to his people. Let me just give you just a few verses where... We read of God's slowness to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Numbers 14:18. Numbers 14:18. Second Chronicles 30 verse 9. Nehemiah 9:17. Psalm 86:15. 103 verse 8. 111 verse 4. 145 verse 8. Joel chapter 2 verse 13. Over and over and over and over again, God presses home this great summary statement of his character in relation to his people. And so Jonah confesses these truths that stand at the very core of a vital orthodox faith in the living God. But he doesn't do so as a statement of praise. He does so as a statement of complaint. And so Jonah says, God you are gracious. You save sinners. You love showing mercy. And I'm so angry about it, I could die. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 3, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So in a, one sense, Jonah's doctrine and his theology are impeccable. It's perfect. 
I mean, he's stating exactly what God's word says. He confesses who God is with precise accuracy to biblical revelation. And he confesses the theology of grace. But Jonah has no room for the work of grace in the lives of those around him in the world. Now, let me try to explain that, what I mean by that. You see, Jonah loves the idea of the love of God and the grace of God. And it's very precious to him, but only so far as God shows his love and his grace to Israel. Not if God shows his love and grace to others. The moment this grace is shown towards Israel's enemies, such as Nineveh, well, all of a sudden now God's grace becomes a problem to Jonah. You see, Jonah loves his own people more than he loves the gospel and the free grace of the gospel being proclaimed to those around him. You see, at this time Israel was living in great sin. The kings of Israel were very wicked. and They were not leading the people to follow the Lord. And Jonah knew that if the gospel would come to the Ninevites, and if they heard and they would repent, that God may use that nation as an instrument of discipline for God's people. And Jonah didn't want that. Jonah did not want... Uh, his people to suffer. He wanted God's grace to be shown to them and didn't want uh, this pagan nation to be used against them. So all of a sudden, God's grace and love is the source of frustration to Jonah, not, not a source of joy. Jonah is happy with grace as long as it stays within the bounds of Jonah's comfort zone that he's created. How easy it is to confess a truth and yet have no room for the reality of that truth in our hearts. Amen? You know, we may know much about God's word. We may know much about God. But unless that doctrine, unless that truth take root in our heart to change us, then it does no good. It is so easy to use orthodox theology to, to hide a heart that has not been changed by that very theology. And what we see here is that it's not enough to speak of the grace of God. It must also be embraced as well. And if the gospel truth is something that you take pride in knowing but you never share, you may well have fallen into the sin of Jonah. God wants Jonah, God wants the nation of Israel who is reading this letter, this, this book, um, this this whole we we sometimes don't think about that you know we think about the fact that God wrote this down so that we would read it but actually the original audience of this letter was the Israelites because God wanted to challenge His people in the way that that they thought and God is is challenging them and He wants the nation of Israel to which this prophecy has been written to know that God made a covenant with Israel so that Israel may share the gospel with the nations. And likewise, God has given the gospel to the church so that the church will share the gospel with the unbelieving in the world in which we live. So let's just think about that for a moment. Let's just, let's just be honest with ourselves. Are there, are, are there people that we would struggle to share the gospel with? You know, what class or group of people in our society do you find it most difficult to trust or to relate to and that you might have trouble sharing the gospel with? Maybe it's a racial group. Maybe it's an economic group. I know I grew up in sort of a middle to lower income family 
And I didn't realize it until the Lord put me in a very, very wealthy church when I was first out of seminary that I had a bias against people that had money. I, I thought of them a certain way and I sort of put them in a certain spiritual classification until God put me in this wealthy church that was the most godly church that I've ever been at. And I've seen people who had great wealth and really taught me what stewardship was all about. It may be a racial thing. It may be an economic group that we struggle with. It may be educational or professional, or maybe it's someone who holds a particular political view that you would wrestle with the minister to. Or maybe it's somebody that holds a particular theological perspective that you would wrestle to communicate the gospel with. Or maybe even those that are very theological light and don't really care about such things. Or maybe it's more personal than that. Maybe it was that you were abused, and so the thought of grace for abusers is a struggle for you. Or maybe you've watched a loved one drink themselves to the death. And so grace for an alcoholic is very difficult for you. Perhaps homosexuality uh, promotes a deep-seated hostility within you. And to think to, to share the gospel with someone who is openly homosexual may be a real challenge for you. Which group of people do you find it hardest to trust, to be around, to talk to, to want to know? What if next Sunday they were sitting in your seat where you're at right now when you showed up for church? What would happen in your heart? What if our church began to fill up with people like that that you struggle with? What would happen to your heart? Is there room in your gospel for such people? Is there room in your gospel that you might become the agent of grace in their lives? Would you talk to them? Would you do the hard work of building a relationship with them so that you might share Jesus Christ with them? Well, that's what Jonah's problem was. Beware of a heart that professes grace flawlessly and yet denies the gracious work of God in the lives of those whom we deem unworthy of his grace. It is an ugly sin of the heart and it is being displayed in Jonah chapter 4 for, all, for us to see. But we also see that God challenges our understanding of providence as well. As you look at verses 4 through 9. Now, if as we think about providence, uh, it is God's working through circumstances in our lives. That's what we mean when we talk about God's providence. And look at verses 4 through 9. God answers Jonah's prayer with a question in verse 4. He says, do you do well to be angry? You know, it's as if God says, Jonah, look at your heart. Look at what is going on in your heart. But Jonah refuses to do that. Instead, he marches out of the city and he builds sort of this makeshift lean-to. And he sits in the shade and then he starts the countdown of the 40 days to see if God will actually spare Nineveh or not. But God doesn't leave Jonah in his anger and in his despair and in his darkness. Instead, what God does is he sends sort of a divine object lesson, if you would. And three times in verses 6 through 8, you can look at this, look at in 6 through 8, we read the words God or the Lord appointed. God appointed. God appointed. It's the same verb that he used back in chapter 1, verse 17, when the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. It's a word designed to highlight the absolute sovereignty of God extending over all his creatures and all their actions as he works in providence to order all things according to the counsel of his will. And we see that, first of all, 
God appointed a plant to grow up and to cover Jonah with shade. And Jonah was, was thrilled about it. You know, he was pretty excited to, to get this shade from the hot sun. But then, the next day, or that night, God sends a worm then to chew on that plant and to kill it. And then, when the sun is beating down the next day upon Jonah, as if that's not bad enough, then God ordained or he appointed a scorching east desert wind to sweep across Jonah and this little lean-to that he had. And Jonah feels his strength beginning to ebb away. It wasn't just that he was a little warm. It wasn't just that he was a pansy and he was used to air conditioning and now he was out in the sun. It wasn't that. You know, we're talking about these are brutal, dangerous conditions. God was bringing Jonah to the brink of death again. You know, like he did when he was cast over the boat and he was sinking down into the sea. But unlike chapter 1 and chapter 2, whereas Jonah is in the belly of the great fish, Jonah doesn't cry out to God. As a matter of fact, instead he gets angry. And he says in verse 8, And he asked that he might die. And he said, It is better for me to die than to live. And then God said in verse 9, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do. But you see, back in verses 6, like I said, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And now that it's taken away from him, he becomes angry. And you see that sometimes what happens in God's works of providence is that we enjoy the comforts that God gives to us. And we enjoy that. And God does oftentimes give us comfort in those times of providence. But he also... Uh, we also need to learn that God's providence is also instructive for us too. It is there to teach us that God uses his providence to expose our hearts and show us how we might lean upon him in faith. And we're very quick, I think, in the church to turn to Romans 8.28, right? You know, something happens in acts of providence and we go, well, you know, God claims that all things will work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And that's true. But how many times do we quote Hebrews 12.6 whenever God's works of providence are happening? How many times do we say, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and, and chastises every son whom he receives. You don't hear that quoted too often. But sometimes that's what God does in his works of providence, that God is teaching us in his providence and we need to learn to listen to the lessons as well as find comfort and resurrection or, or reassurance in the truth. And then he goes on and he says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Did you catch that last part? need to let that sink in to those who have been trained by it. You know, there are times when God brings his acts of providence into our lives and we can become like Jonah. We can become angry. Our hearts become hard. We're like, Lord, why are you doing this? And rather than learning the lessons, rather than sitting at the feet of Jesus as the Holy Spirit works in our life through these acts of providence, we become rather angry before God. But he wants us to see that those, that providence comes into our lives that we might listen to him, that we might learn the lessons that he has to teach us, that he uses those things to expose the attitudes and the actions of our hearts. But if we learn as God disciplines us, he is crafting a usable servant as he wields the surgical instrument 
of providential trial. If we are to be mature and effective instruments in the master's hand as we pray and as we reach out to our city, we need to bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness, having been well trained by the disciplinary hand of God and providence. And then third, God challenges our understanding of compassion in verses 10 and 11. But before we get to those verses, you know, God asked Jonah if he's right to be angry about the plant that died. And, and Jonah's indignant response is, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die in verse 9. Well, the truth is that Jonah had no right. It was a gift of undeserved grace that God had given him, that plant, to shield him from the sun. It was nothing but a misguided sense of entitlement that Jonah had that made Jonah resentful when the plant was taken away. How often are our hearts like that? That God gives us good things. He gives and he takes away. When he gives, we're excited and we're so thankful for that. But then when he takes it away, we become angry. But Jonah really had no right to be angry, none at all. It sort of reminds you of Paul in, in Romans chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. And he's talking about God's great works of, of sovereignty. How he chooses some and doesn't choose other. And, and he anticipates you know, this backlash from his readers of saying, That's not fair for God to do that. But, I, but Paul's response would be good for Jonah to take to heart as well as we read these words. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? You see, Jonah has no grounds for dissatisfaction for, um, towards God. God is the Lord and Jonah is his creature. And Jonah cannot stand as judge over God. And then God just sort of answers Jonah's um, attitude by making all of this plain in verses 10 and 11. He says, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not, uh, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? In other words, there are 120,000 children, little kids, that aren't even old enough to understand their left from their right hand. Should I not have pity on them? God says, I made them. I am their God. They are mine. They depend upon me. Ought not I to have pity upon them? Ought I not to have compassion on them? Don't I have the right as the potter over the clay? Am I not free to have mercy on whom I will have mercy? It's a rebuke. Just like Jesus um, rebuked in the parable of the laborers in Matthew chapter 20. I don't know if you remember that story or not, but the master decided he wanted to hire some laborers. And he said, I will pay you a day's wage if you'll go work for me. So the laborers went and done, did so. And then later on in the day, he hired some more laborers and some, others and some others until finally, about an hour before quitting time, he hired laborers and then he paid them all the same wages and they became angry. And, they, and the ones that were hired earlier in the day, and they're like, now wait a minute, this isn't fair. We worked in the heat of the sun and did all this hard labor and then others came one hour before quitting time and you pay them the same wages? 
And the master said, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And that's what God says to us. You know, that's the force of the rebuke to Jonah's heart here, isn't it? You know, God's compassionate is being directed towards others in such a way that it inconveniences Jonah. And Jonah begrudges God's generosity. And it's as if God says to Jonah, you're not wrong to love. And you're not wrong to love fervently or strongly. But you love the wrong things. You want comfort. You love your own people. You love a God who conforms to your expectation. But he says, I am not that God. I am a God who is compassionate. I am a God who loves the nations. I am a God who loves the lost. I love Nineveh, God says. So here is the God of the covenant of love. A God gracious and merciful, indeed slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. A God who relents from disaster. And here he is, made flesh, nailed to a tree, that people from every tribe and language and nation might be gathered into his kingdom. And so, if you think about it, here God is in Genesis chapter 12 coming to Abram and he says, I am going to bless you. And I'm not only going to bless you, but I'm going to make you into a great nation. And not only is that nation going to be blessed, but the peoples of the world are going to be blessed. And what you see from Genesis 12 to the Gospels where Christ comes and he dies upon the cross is God dealing with his people and God blessing the nations even in the Old Testament even though he doesn't show the full manifestation of that blessing upon the nations yet even in the Old Testament God is that gracious and compassionate God because God has given the Gospel of Jesus Christ to the church not for us to hoard that but he has given us the Gospel of Jesus Christ that we might go And we might share that with the nations. And so Jesus died that not only would the Ninevites be saved, but that Kansas might find a home in his family as well. The measure of the love of God for the nations is ultimately the cross of Jesus Christ. We read in Romans 15, 9, where it says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to conform confirmed the promises given to the patriarchs. And then he goes on and he says this, and in order that the Gentiles, that's you and I, by the way, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. Jesus came in order that the Gentiles, that the nations might glorify God for his mercy. And that's what the cross is all about, to bring into his kingdom, men and women and children, boys and girls from every tribe, language, and nation under heaven. So, what do you love more than your neighbor that you've put before the great need of their souls of Jesus? What do you love more than telling your neighbors about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you putting your reputation Are you putting your comfort in life, your fear, maybe your desire for undisturbed relationship? Well, God calls Jonah to give up his misplaced pity and to learn to pity the nations and to love them. He calls him to give up his misplaced love for himself and his comfort and to love like God loves, even like Christ loves. 
This is the call to a cruciform love, a love that gives us and goes and serves and sacrifices for the sake of the loss. And so as we come to the end of Jonah, oftentimes the question that most people have is, well, did Jonah learn his lesson? You know, did he? Did he learn his lesson? Did he come to love the loss with something that echoed the love of God? Well, the answer is, we don't know. The Bible doesn't, doesn't tell us. But in the end, that's not really the point of the fourth chapter of Jonah. The question that really is not so much, did Jonah learn his lesson? The real question is, will us? Will we learn our lesson? Will we understand how compassionate and gracious our God is? And that he may call us as individuals, he may call us as a church to minister to people that make us feel very uncomfortable. He may call us to, to, to get down and to get dirty with people that are not nice and neat and clean like we are. He may call us to be in the lives of people that are fickle and people that you share Christ with and they say they follow him and yet they don't and they're just very difficult people because he is a God who pursues such people. He is a God who does not give up on them. So will we learn the lesson Providence has been teaching us? Will we, will we give up being satisfied with knowing the truth and yet never sharing it? Will we learn to love the city that, that we're in, in which there are more than 12,000 souls, many of whom do not know the Lord Jesus Christ? Those are the questions of Jonah that are pressing upon us. Are you Jonah? Are you listening? And will you learn the lesson that God is teaching? Let's bow for a time of meditation and prayer. Lord, we have read in, in your word in Psalm 103 and Psalm 1, that we are a blessed people. We are actually a very privileged people uh, to have your word, many of us to grow up in Christian homes, uh, hearing the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not perfect homes, but they're Christian homes that proclaim Christ and, and parents that seek to love the Lord as best they can. Lord, to be in a church body that encourages us to love you. Lord, a church body that loves each other and yet there are many people out there, God, who have none of that. Many who are lonely. Many, God, who uh, really don't know what it's like to have close, close friends. People who really love them unconditionally. And we thank you, God, that you have given us the privileges that you have. But Lord, let us not squander such things. Let us not get angry when you work in such a way that we don't understand in your works of providence. God, when you show yourself to be too gracious and too compassionate for our liking, we pray, Lord, that you would change our hearts to be ready for your work in our midst. God, as you work to share Christ through us, please prepare your vessels. God, please confront our pride and our desire for comfort, Lord, challenge our laziness. Oh, Lord, we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit that raised our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, from the dead, the one who gave his life that we might know you.
the one Lord, the one God who has given us such privilege, may you so work in our hearts that we would be your hands and your feet in this world, your mouthpieces to go and to share Christ, whether that be to our neighbors, our family members, our co-workers. Maybe it's some stranger off the street. Maybe it's somebody begging us for money that just a person who just maybe irritates us and we wish they would just go away and they wouldn't face us with their problems. Lord, let it give us hearts of compassion and pity that we might share Christ. We thank you and pray this in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.